good to uh, reflect on the nature of ministry and thankful for this last week to be able to look at the ministry of the Richmonds and see that kind of firsthand the the uh, progress and as well as the challenges that they're facing along the way but I couldn't commend what they're doing anymore um, thankful for how they're doing the work and seeking to be faithful to God there in New York and um, just uh, makes makes me more encouraged about the progress of the gospel and as much as all the terrible things that are going on in the news uh, depress us and um, uh, you know these kinds of things when we recognize the great power that Christ has to build his church and that the gates of hell will not prevail against it being able to see that firsthand is, is just a uh, real encouragement to me and uh, thankful for the Richmonds and for the work of ministry uh, that they're doing there. So I uh, just want to continue to commend you uh, to them and, and to praying for them and encouraging them in the faith. Uh, they, are, they are working hard for the sake of truth and for the sake of the spread of the gospel, and, and God is prospering their ministry. Tonight we're going to be in 2 Samuel chapter 7. We're continuing our study in the books of Samuel uh, that we have been for probably close to a year now. And, um, and we've come to 2 Samuel 7. The story of David's life has been a story of much conflict. But most notably, the story of David's life has been the story of God's mercy on a man or a young man who was less than appealing and who was willing to simply trust God. God has been merciful to David. David's story begins to resolve. You know, we've kind of seen this conflict the whole way that David is supposed to be king and he's not king. He's being chased around as if he's a fugitive. Uh, and now it's starting to come to resolve in that he actually receives the throne. He starts to see the throne expand as we saw last time. And... And here, in this part of Second Samuel, it really the story, if you look at the whole arc of the story, it starts to come to a, to a, um, a climax. In Second Samuel 5, he becomes king over Israel. In Second Samuel 6, he leads the procession of the Ark of the Covenant back to Jerusalem or to Jerusalem for the first time so that the presence of God could be among uh, the people so that the capital city of Israel would also be the capital city of God. That the city of David would be the city of David's God. And God established His throne and defended it from the attack of the Philistines. And so the, the people are uniting around the rule of David. And now in chapter 7, as David reflects on all of God's goodness, he notices that something seems out of place. See if you can pick it up what it is that seems to be out of place as we read through this text. We'll read verses 1 through 17. So follow along in your Bible as I read. This is the Word of God. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in the house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your mind, for the Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, saying, Go and say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord, 
Are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelt in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. And I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you, who will come forth from you, and I will establish his kingdom. And he shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And I will be a father to him, and he will be a son to me. And when he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him, as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. So what is it that's out of place in this text? As David starts to settle down here in the throne, now in this established location of Jerusalem, the Ark of the Covenant's here, what is out of place? And in David's view, it is, that he's living in a house of cedar, a house of, of beautiful wood, and God, the Ark of the Covenant, is residing in a tent. And so what's out of place is that David feels like he needs to build up something where God's presence can reside in a nicer, more permanent location. And what we need to see tonight, and what I think the author of Samuel and what I think the Holy Spirit wants us to see is that kingdom building is God's job, not ours. Kingdom building is God's job, not ours. In other words, God is the one who's going to accomplish His purposes. God's going to be the one to establish His kingdom. That's what we should see through the text because David's saying, I'm going to do it. I'm going to help you. And God's saying, no, I'm actually going to be the one that does it. You'll see that in the text here. The first thing that we see in verses 1-3 through three is that we imagine that the building of God's kingdom depends on us. We imagine that the building of God's kingdom depends on us. David has this, this desire in verses 1-3, through three, I want to build a house for you, God. Now, keep in mind, there's nothing evil about David's intention here. In fact, turn to Haggai 1. There's much that we can commend about what David is doing here. Haggai chapter 1. the third to last book in the Old Testament. David looked around, noticed that his palace was built up all nicely, and he's living in luxury, and yet the ark of God was dwelling in a tent. And if we didn't read the rest of Second Samuel 7, God's response saying, no, you're not going to build a house for me, I'm going to build a house for you. If we didn't read the rest of that response, we might think, 
like Nathan does in, in verse 3 of, of our passage, which is, go ahead, do all that's in your mind. God is behind you. I mean, consider what God said to the people of Israel here in Haggai chapter 1, verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the people, this people says, the time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet saying, Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this house lies desolate? Now therefore, thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there's not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one, no, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains, bring wood, and rebuild the temple, that I may be pleased with it and be glorified, says the Lord. So, if we understand this passage, what we should be able to see is that when we get back to 2 Samuel 7, don't go there yet, we're still looking here, but, but when we get back to 2 Samuel 7, we'll see that what David's offering to God is not a bad thing inherently. And the setting here is that we're, we're around uh, the 6th century B.C., 538 B.C., Cyrus issued a decree for the Jews to make it back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple led by Zerubbabel. You remember in Ezra uh, chapter 1, we, we read about that. And about 50,000 Jews went home and began the work on the temple. They started working on the foundation, just kind of getting rid of all this destruction that had been done to it. And about two years later, the foundation was completed, according to Ezra 3. And as a result, the enemies, the Samaritans and the other neighbors, started to see that, that Israel was starting to gain strength. And so as a result, they started to oppose the project, the rebuilding project of the temple. And so they got the people of Judah to lose heart and they stopped working. So they started up the work, they built it up for a couple of years, and then they gave up because it was just too hard. There's too much opposition. And over time, what happened, according to this text that we see here in Haggai 1, is that they started to become apathetic, didn't they? They, had, they started to become apathetic toward rebuilding the temple. You know, that's what we came for, but do we really need to continue? Look at verse 2 again. The second part of the verse says, The time has not come, even the time for the house of the Lord to be rebuilt. God's putting words in their mouth. You know, we'll kind of hold off until things fall into place, until things get a little bit easier. There's too much opposition right now. Until things are more convenient. And what God wanted them to see was that the problem was not in the opposition... The problem was not in the deficiency of materials, but the problem was in their attitude or what they saw as a priority. You see, it's not time yet to build the house of the Lord while they have all this time to take care of their own house. And so in their minds, it didn't really matter if God's temple was restored. And God's point is that, you know, you have plenty of time and energy to work on your own houses, your paneled houses, is some kind of cedar paneling, kind of paneling that was associated with kings. You focused all your efforts on your own dwelling place while my house lies desolate. Now turn back to Second Samuel 7. Um, God basically says there in Haggai 1, you know, the, the reason that you have, are having all these problems is because I'm trying to get your attention. You know, you're, you eat, but you're not satisfied. You put on clothes, but they're not warm enough. You have, you, you're putting your money in. It's like you're putting your money into a purse with holes. 
and, and what's happening is you've failed to listen to the Word of the Lord and as a result, I'm trying to wake you up with your circumstances. And, and so he's saying, it's time to rebuild the house of the Lord here. Now, if, if we think about that story in relationship to what David wants to do, we might think like Nathan. Look at Nathan says in verse 3. Nathan said to the king, Go, do that all that's in your mind and the Lord is with you. In other words, you know what? Sounds like the Lord's will to me. Start the building process. I think God is completely behind you. So here's the nature of, of how we often view the kingdom of God. It's our responsibility. My responsibility is to build the kingdom. And I think, as we'll see from this text and as we consider some other texts in Scripture, the king, kingdom building depends solely on God. Verses 4 through 17. Kingdom building depends solely on God. David said, I have this desire to build you a house, a dwelling place. And God's saying, uh, actually, I don't need that from you. Okay, let me tell you what I'm going to do for you. So first, what happens here in verses 4 through 7 is that God declines David's offer. So Nathan already gave his assessment of the situation without consulting God. He says, go ahead and do it, David. And then God says, actually, Nathan, I need to talk to you because you need to say this to David. I, I'm not ready for a house to be built for me. In God's wisdom, God had chosen that Solomon would be the one to build the temple. Solomon would be the one. And, and God gives two reasons why he declines David's offer. What are they in verses 6 and 7? What's one reason why God declined David's offer? Verses 6 and 7. What is it? I didn't hear you. Sorry. Okay, that's in Second Chronicles. That's in a different passage. That was going to be the third reason. You, you spoiled my First Chronicles. Okay, you spoiled my surprise. But what, what in this text, verses 6 and 7, what is one reason why God says you cannot build or, or I'm not going to allow you to do it? Okay, good. He's never lived in one. Hey, I, up until this point, I've been living in a tent. I never asked for one. And the second reason in verse 7 is that a house for the presence of God was a human idea. Wherever I've gone, he says in verse 7, with all the sons of Israel, did I, speak with, did I ever speak with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded, and say, why have you not built me a house? Now, he does say that when he gets to Haggai. Why have you not rebuilt the house? But he's saying, I've never asked for one. I've never lived in a permanent house and I've never asked for one. So those are two reasons from the text. The third reason, okay, uh, from Jonathan, he must be looking at my notes. First Chronicles 22.8, either that or maybe we're studying the same Bible. First Chronicles 22.8, David was not to be the one to establish the house of God because he had shed much blood and so your son is going to do it. All right, so God de declines David's offer really surprisingly. We would think, wait a second, God, don't you want a permanent place? Isn't this a good thing? Isn't this what you want? And God follows that up by reminding David of his sovereignty in verses 8 through 11. God reminds him of his sovereignty. He reminds David of several things. God reminds David that he was the one who chose David. He says, and, and really he's speaking on behalf of all of Israel, he's saying, in verse 8, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be ruler over my people Israel. 
I chose you, David, as a lowly shepherd. I called you to be the shepherd of my people Israel. And then in verse 9, he says, he reminds David of his presence. David, I was with you all the way. I have been with you. And the third way he reminds him of his sovereignty is he reminds David of his power at the end of verse 9. He says, I have cut off all your enemies from before you. The middle of verse 9. And then the end of the verse 9, he reminds David of his promise. His promise first for a great name. I will make you a great name. And then his promise for a great place. I will appoint a place, verse 10. And then his promise of great protection in verses 10 and 11. So what he's saying here is, David, you were nothing and you will be something, not because of anything you had done. I chose you, David. I could have chosen Eliab, your older brother. I didn't. I chose you. And I have protected you, and I have, I have established you, and I have been with you, and I've promised to give you a great name and a great place and a great protection. So what God is reminding David is who really is in charge of building a kingdom. In the last part of uh, our text, we see that God promises David an everlasting throne. Here's kind of the play on words that we see uh, in this text. Uh, I guess I didn't give you those blanks, so I'll have to just say them to you, okay? God promises David an everlasting throne. First, the promise of a throne. The second part of verse 11. Notice what he says. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So David's saying to Nathan in verse 2, um, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains. So in other words, I want to build a house for God. I want to build a permanent dwelling place for God. And what God is saying is, No, David, you're not going to build a house for me. I'm going to build a house for you. And when he, what he means is one that's going to last forever. Not some kind of you know, titanium material that's just going to stand the test of, of all kinds of weather and, and time. He's talking about a dynasty, isn't he? A ruling dynasty that we know from the rest of the text. He's saying, you want to build a physical location for me. I want to build a ruling dynasty for you. You want to build a house for me. I want to build a house, a line for you. And the timing of the throne is found in verse 12. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. See, it wasn't that God did not have in his plan that he was going to have a house. Okay? God would eventually, that is the Ark of the Covenant, would reside in a permanent dwelling place, a house. But it's kind of like when the people wanted a king right at the beginning of 1 Samuel. God had already planned that they would have a king, right? We know that from Deuteronomy 17. that said, Israel, when you have a king, make sure that that king reads from the Scriptures every day. That he makes a copy of the Scriptures and reads from it every day. So God had planned that they were going to have a king, but when they asked for one, what was God's problem with it? The problem was that they took the initiation and that they were doing it with the wrong motives. And yet God gave it to him anyway. Here, David takes the initiation in building a permanent dwelling place for God or, or at least a, a permanent structure for God. 
I think he did it with right motives, unlike the people of Israel asking for a king. But, but God is reluctant because he wants to show that he is behind it all. In fact, the house that David wanted to build would be built by his son Solomon. But the house that God was going to build could not be built by human hands. It had to be built by the creator of the universe because it's going to be a kingdom, a line, a dynasty that will last forever. And that could only happen by the power of God. The house that God was going to build for David was an everlasting kingdom. It was guaranteed. The guarantee of the throne is found in verses 13 through 17. Look at the second part of verse 13. It says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom, David's descendants' kingdom, forever. Here God moves from speaking about what Solomon will do for him, that is, Solomon will build a house for God, to talking about what God will do for David, and that is that I'm going to build this house for you, and one of your descendants is going to, to reign on that throne forever. And so this is a guarantee of the throne. The guarantee of this promise is seen in three ways in verses 14 through 17. First, first, David's death cannot cancel God's promise. David's death cannot cancel God's guarantee. Right? He says, When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I'm still going to develop and establish my eternal kingdom through your descendant. So, It's not going to be annulled when David dies. Secondly, the guarantee of his throne is seen, this everlasting kingdom is seen, in the fact that the sins of David's sons will not revoke the promise. So David's death cannot revoke the promise and the sins of his sons will not revoke the promise. In verses 14 and 15, God's saying some of your descendants after you are not going to be perfect. In fact, all of them are not except for one. And all of those descendants who sin, God says, I will restore them. I will bring them back to Myself. I will continue to build what I'm building in spite of them in some cases. Right? God's basically saying, I'm going to remain faithful to My promise through death, through sin, and then thirdly, through time. Verse 16, time will not exhaust the guarantee of this eternal kingdom. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. So he's saying to David, David, there is a guarantee of this eternal kingdom that I'm building for you. I'm building for my people. And the guarantee of this will not be annulled when you die, when your sons die, and it will not be annulled when your your sons sin, and it will not be annulled when time is no more. This kingdom will go on beyond that, won't it? It's an everlasting kingdom. So, when David decided that God needed a house, God reminded David that he was the one who had chosen David and shown favor to Israel. God was the one who had shown future grace to Israel. And only after David recognized that was God ready for a house to be built for him. Dale Davis highlights in his commentary the contrast between how God builds His temple or allows His temple to be built and how the pagan gods did it. For Israel, it was God wanted to make clear that He chose Israel. He showed favor to Israel. He promised future grace to Israel. And only after that 
would He allow a house to be built for them? See, so this is all me. I've chosen you. I've shown favor to you. I, I am showing favor to you and I promise future favor to you. Only after that will you build me a house. And the difference between how Israel's God built His house or had His house built and how the pagans did it is much different because for the pagans, at least as they followed their gods, in their view, their God would show them favor and as a result, the pagans would give their God something. And in this case, they would build a temple for them, for Him. So, you've delivered me, delivered me from some kind of circumstance and so we're going to build a house for you, this beautiful temple. And that's what all these pagan temples are, aren't they? They're just big shrines to what they think their gods have done for them. And then what do they expect now that they've built this house for their pagan god? What do they expect? They expect now He should do something for them. And so there's kind of this cyclical karma kind of mindset that if you do something good for me, then I'll do something good for you, and, and then you'll have to scratch my back, and I'll scratch yours, and we'll just keep helping each other out. And God's saying, scrap that idea. That's not how I work. Okay, It's all me from beginning to end, right? I chose you. I show favor to you. And I promise future favor. And now, you can build me a house. It's my kingdom. And so God wanted to make clear that He was behind all the good that came to Israel. Listen to this. Whether or not they served Him, they were His chosen people. And He was going to make sure that they were going to be the recipients, their, their people group would be the recipients of His mercy. So what we have here is a different kind of covenant or a different kind of promise. Not, not completely different. Abraham has a promise like this. And that is a unilateral, one-sided promise. That is, no matter what Israel does, God's going to follow through on this promise. And that's different from the Mosaic Law. The Mosaic Law was a two-sided covenant. They both entered into agreement that if they did this, then God would, would be expected to follow through on blessing and promise and so on. But if they didn't, they should expect... Right, the last two chapters in Deuteronomy, read those sometime. If you do this, then God will do this. If you don't do this, then God will, will judge you and so on. Okay, that's, that's a two-sided agreement, the Mosaic Covenant. But the one-sided agreement of the Abrahamic Covenant is, listen, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And through you, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Well, this is the same type of thing. David, I don't need you. Okay, I'm going to bring a kingdom to this earth that's through your line and I'm going to do it all whether or not you serve me. God says, I'm going to make an everlasting dynasty through you. Not death, not sin, not time can stop me from following through on my promise. And the reason why I'm declining your initial offer, David, to build me a temple is proof to you that my gifts to you have nothing to do with karma. It's not like I'm looking for something from you. It's all based on the fulfillment of my promise and my purpose. I will cause it to happen. So God's work in 2 Samuel reminds us of two principles. One we've kind of alluded to, and I, I don't want to miss as we're going through this, and that is 
that this promise to David is fulfilled through his greater son, Jesus. In case you missed who, who we're talking about here, we're talking about Jesus, the greater son of David. This promise could not be fulfilled with an ordinary son of David because all of David's sons die. Right? We needed one who will live forever. And all those sons, save Jesus, were sinful. And so they wouldn't rule in, in perfection. They wouldn't rule well. Jesus, in addition to being perfect and living forever, also uh, can see into the heart, which we cannot do. So this one son will live forever. And it guarantees that this throne of David will go on and on. The promise to David is fulfilled through his greater son, Jesus. The second principle, and I think this is the main point of the text, is that God doesn't need us to build his kingdom. God doesn't need us to build his kingdom. Now that doesn't sound very pleasant to our American ears, does it? I mean, of course God needs us, right? Who's going to praise Him if not us? Who's going to, to bring more people into the kingdom? Who's going to witness if not us? Who's going to make disciples if not us? And you know, and there's a sense of that kind of reasoning that's legitimate, right? That's why we think it. Because, and the reason that, that that's a right kind of thinking, there's some truth to that, is because God does accomplish His purposes through means. He's chosen to use people like you and me to bring about His final purposes. But let's think about God's kingdom for a second just so that we can get a, a, a proper perspective. And, and in order to do this, we need to take a step back and look at the bigger picture. Without God, could we bring about God's kingdom? If God were not a part of our lives in any way, could we bring about this everlasting kingdom where someone will rule in truth and honesty? Could we do it? And the answer is, of course not. We depend upon God to bring about His own kingdom. But, but how about the other way? Without us, can God still bring about His kingdom? If you and I turn away from the faith tomorrow, can God bring about His kingdom? And this passage screams, yes. David, when you die, the kingdom will still be established. David, when your sons die, the kingdom will still be established. David, when your sons sin, I will still bring about my kingdom. David, when time is no more, the kingdom will still remain. David, I don't need you to build my house for me. What you need to know is that I'm building my house on my own. And what I'm talking about is not a physical structure where the Ark of the Covenant can reside, but an everlasting dynasty. God does that on His own. You see, there is a sense in which God doesn't need us. Instead, we need God. God is completely self-existent. He is in no need of our, our um, life. We don't, he doesn't derive life from us. He doesn't become glorious, more glorious because of us. Now, certainly He can have more glory ascribed to His name or make it more known through people. Listen to V. Phillips Long in his commentary. He says, How easily our imaginations can be captured by our energies, exhausted by what we want to build for God, when what He really wants is for us to sit attentively 
witnessing what he is building so that we may marvel and give him thanks. Isn't it interesting how easy it is for us to subtly think that God needs us to build his kingdom? You realize that all building that has value is initiated and empowered by God. All building that has value is initially is initiated and empowered by God. Jesus didn't say, you will build my church. What did he say? He said, I'm going to do it. I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. John Goldengay in his commentary says, the Bible never talks about us establishing God's kingdom. The Bible never talks us about furthering God's kingdom. The, the Bible never talks, us about, talks about us building God's kingdom or extending God's kingdom. Now, that's language that you're going to read in a lot of books today. But the Bible never talks in those terms. The only thing that we do for the kingdom is wait for it, see it, enter it, seek it, receive it, inherit it, and declare it. Declare that it's coming. Right? We, we don't actually... We don't actually do the building. So there's this harsh reality that God doesn't need us to establish His kingdom. That it will be established with or without us. Let me just give you some, some uh, text of Scripture to think about in relation to this just to kind of further, um, further support what I'm trying to say here. In Luke 19... Jesus says that God is worthy of our praise and that if we don't praise Him, who's going to cry out? The very rocks are going to cry out. Job 41, 10, 11. Who then is He that can stand before me, God says, who has given to me that I should repay Him? Right? What do we really contribute to God? Who, who's really given me anything, He says to Job, that I have to repay Him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Psalm 50, 7 through 12. Hear, O my people, and I will speak. I will testify against you. I am God, your God. I do not reprove you for your sacrifices and your burnt offerings and continually, uh, that are continually before me. I shall take no young bull out of your house nor male goats out of your folds. Why? Every beast of the forest is mine. The cattle on a thousand hills, they all belong to me. I know every bird of the mountains and everything that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, God says in Psalm 50, I would not tell you. For the whole world is mine and all it contains. How much do we really contribute to God's existence? How much do we really contribute to the advancement of God's unilateral promise of an everlasting kingdom? And so listen to what God is saying. I don't need your sacrifices. I don't need your offerings. I own the universe. If I were ever short of money or needed something to eat, I wouldn't ask you because I am fully sufficient on my own. Paul said to the, to the um, philosophers on Mars Hill in Acts 17, he says, The God who made the world and all things in it, since He is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is He served by human hands as though He needed anything. So what I think we have from the whole of Scripture, if we take a step back, is this harsh reality that God is self-existent. 
And in a sense, it's harsh because it feels like we're, we're, we don't have really a purpose in life then. What we need to recognize here is this great creator-creature distinction that we are not God and God is not us. He is far above us. He is self-sufficient, independent, unmoved by humans. And so here's the point. God's kingdom will be established by God and for God. Now, before you jump off the spiritual deep end, let me tell you why God includes you in His work and why you do have a purpose in life and why you should not give up in the work of sanctification and the work that God has called you to do. First, we should work for God because God commands us to. I mean, if God is the self-sufficient being on His own, He is fine and He's going to accomplish His unilateral purposes and we don't contribute anything to it, it should give us some confidence, shouldn't it? You know, it doesn't rest on me. It doesn't rest on this church whether or not God is going to self-exist. God's going to self-exist no matter what. It shouldn't lead us to despair, though. It should actually give us confidence in who we're putting our trust in. Hey, we're not doing it like one of these pagan gods who, you know, they're only as good as the people who are serving them. They're only as good as the people who care for them and protect them. Remember Dagon? Right? He's in the temple and the Ark of the Covenant arrives and boom, he falls over on his face. Put him back up. You see, he's only as good as those who actually are caring for him. Otherwise, he'd just be, you know, just a wreck and filled with cobwebs. That's not our God. He's self-sufficient. And so he's completely worthy of our trust. And here's why we enter into his work that he's called us to. Not because we advance the kingdom, because He commands us to. Secondly, we should work for God because He promises to bless us. I mean, isn't this amazing that God has chosen in His sovereignty to make us a part of His program and that one of the ways that He accomplishes what He will is through us, that we can join into His family, that we no longer have to face the reality that we should have faced, which is spiritual death. I mean, why would we not want to serve Him after all that He's done for us if He is this self-sufficient God who can accomplish whatever He wills apart from us and yet He still chooses to include us in His program? Why would we not want to be a part of that? Why would we not want to give our lives as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to Him? God has promised rich rewards in this life and the next if we will trust in His Son as the only means of our salvation from God's wrath. The larger point that we cannot miss is that, friends, we are utterly dependent upon God. And if you feel really small right now, if you feel really insignificant right now, I think you're on the right track. Okay, Because as we start to see more of the, the huge gulf that is fixed between our Creator and us, we're starting to see God for who He is. And amazingly, still, God chooses to use us in His church to accomplish His purposes. This kingdom, remember, Jesus often used parables, and He says this kingdom of heaven is, is like a seed that goes into the ground. And overnight, it turns into this, I mean, over time, really, it, it turns into this huge tree 
that gives everything shade. And, and how did it happen? No one knows. We're just kind of enjoying the shade. That's like the kingdom that in the background, God is working to build up this future kingdom of Christ that's going to last forever. We don't see how it's all happening. We don't see how all of the tools that God is using to make it happen, happen. but we know that God's doing it. And so the question I think tonight is not what will you do to advance God's kingdom, but rather, are you a member of the kingdom? Do you want to be a member of the kingdom? And if so, then repent and believe, and the king has lovingly chosen to allow you to be a part of his future kingdom, to receive the kingdom, to be a citizenship of it, a citizen of this kingdom where you can now be a herald of this kingdom, where you can speak on behalf of the king and say, hey, thus says the Lord. He's building up this great kingdom. Don't you want to be a part of it? In fact, he calls you to be a part of it. Repent and believe. So this should not, this kind of passage should not bring us to despair, but rather it should open up our eyes and remind us of our position in light of our great Creator. It actually humbles us, doesn't it? That's why, you, again, why we constantly are seeing these pictures in Scripture. When people come before the presence of God, they recognize their utter smallness before Him, their insignificance. I mean, who am I? When I gaze into the night skies and see the work of your fingers, and, and, and what is man? you would ever take thought of Him. Why would you ever include me in your future kingdom? And yet God, in His grace, has chosen to do so. And He's bringing about that kingdom. And uh, we would do well to be a part of it. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for uh, the truth of Your Word. Thankful for this reminder about your unilateral promises. There are uh, other promises that we take part in that are bilateral or we enter into an agreement with you. But this one specifically appears to be uh, unilateral in its scope. David didn't enter into the covenant with you to build his kingdom. Uh, You did this all on your own and you promised to do that whether death comes or sin or even time is no more. This promise will remain and and will be fulfilled. So, Lord, we trust you. And we've seen part of that promise uh, start to come to fruition because Jesus has come to the earth and he's died and and he's now the the, uh, future king. He's established himself as powerful and reigning over sin and over death. He's defeated both of those with the resurrection. So he's worthy to sit on the throne of David and to reign forever and ever as a, uh, as a token of, of your promise. And so we, uh, we look to him for grace and we put our confidence ultimately in you and, and we pray that you'd help us to see ourselves more clearly in light of your word and in light of uh, who you are and what you've done. Lord, help us not to fall into despair because maybe we thought we had a bigger part in the kingdom when really the most we can do is, is speak on behalf of it Um, Lord, you are doing all the work in the background and you're going to bring about your purposes. And even in the end, when we look at all that we have done for the sake of your purposes, we'll 
we'll marvel at the grace that you had given to us along the way, that your spirit resided with us, that we were standing on the promises that you had given to us, and that all of our uh, works were done in the strength that only you provide. Lord, help us to to be faithful to you and not to give up hope, um, but rather to recognize your great power and sovereignty over all things. And as a result, humbly come before you and depend on you daily uh, for everything that we need. We pray for your help in Jesus' name. Amen.